Job chapter 33, verses 1 through 33. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. But now, hear my speech, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth, the tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Surely you have spoken in my ears and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, He finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds, Then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, And his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be lighted with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have any words, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning. In chapter 32, we were introduced to a new character by the name of Elihu. He has come to respond to Job and his so-called wise friends. First, he addressed Job's friends because they had not given Job a sufficient answer to his suffering. And they just used his suffering to elevate themselves. Now, in chapter 33, he turns to Job. And so far, we get the sense that Elihu is different. He is not like Job's friends. He is not a windbag. And he's not just here blowing off steam. 
He's not going to seek to justify himself. He speaks for God. He is a prophet of God. He has become God's new champion to rebuke and restore Job from the clutches of Satan. And one way that Job was deceived was that he believed that God was silent about his situation. This is something we could all relate to at one point or another. When we're going through hardship of whatever kind, we often think to ourselves, God is silent. He is not answering our prayers. You say, I I don't sense his presence or I don't feel his joy. But if we were to summarize Elihu's response to Job here and his response to us, it would be God speaks. The God who spoke the world into existence out of nothing still speaks today. So Elihu tells Job, That he is to listen to a fellow man? Consider the ways that God does speak? And finally, listen to the words of God. First, he calls Job to listen to his fellow man. I remember learning back in grade school how there is a difference between hearing and listening. Listening involves internally taking it in and thinking about what is said and applying it to life. Here, Elihu summons Job like he is being summoned to court for trial. He summons him to hear his speech and listen to his words. Pay attention to what I'm going to say. He opens his mouth and his tongue in his mouth speaks. So it is best that Job listens to him. Why? Why should Job listen to Elihu? Uh, This is where we see the difference between Elihu and Job's friends. First, Elihu argues it is because he is sincere. He is upright in his heart. His motives are in the right place, unlike Job's friends. Secondly, he said, it is because the Spirit of God made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In other words, as long as he has breath in his lungs, he must speak for God. And it was the Spirit of God that has placed the words in his mouth to speak. So thirdly, he is humble. He argues out of humility, yet the situation is serious. It must be addressed, and Job will have a chance to respond if Elihu is wrong. He says, answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Listen to what I have to say. And if it doesn't line up with your story, Job, then you'll have a chance to respond. And thirdly, Elihu sympathizes with Job. Now this is where we see most clearly that Elihu is different than Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They were supposed to sympathize with Job. That was the original motive, but they didn't. Instead, they stood over Job and condemned him. Here, Elihu sympathizes with Job. He says, in summary, I'm just like you. He didn't approach Job carelessly with lofty words to put him down. The purpose of Elihu's words were to change Job. The purpose of his words to Job were to transform Job. He was there to change his mind and heart about God. It was about persuasion. 
This should be an example for all of us when we consider others. He says, behold, I am toward God as you are. I'm not only a fellow believer, but I'm just like everyone else. I am a man like you who will one day stand before God. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. I am fragile and I am sinful. This should be the mindset of every believer when we see a fellow believer who is mistaken about God or when we approach unbelievers to confront them about God. I am a man like you. Elihu met Job where he was. But at the same time, he wasn't there to compromise the truth of God. He wasn't pandering to Job because he had to hold Job accountable. Since Elihu is a man like him, Job has no need to be afraid of him or be filled with terror. He says, my pressure will not be heavy upon you because I have no right since I am just like you. He's there just to persuade Job. But Job now has no excuse. God is using a man to deliver his message. So, so now Job can't say that God's purpose is to terrify him, as he has said before in chapter 9 and in chapter 13. This is how God has spoken to his people throughout the centuries. He uses men to deliver his message, just like today. God uses men to teach and to preach his word. So that's in a way saying to you, it's better that you listen now than for God himself to confront you later. So the Lord condescends to Job by putting words on the lips of Elihu and now Job, like all of us, is expected to listen. Why? Why was Elihu compelled to speak? Well, because Job had God mistaken. So before Elihu explains all the ways that God speaks, he tells Job why he must speak. Job, as a fellow man and as a fellow believer, needed to be corrected. Elihu was paying close attention to Job's words, and he directly quotes Job here almost word for word. See, Elihu will not do as Job's friends have done when they misrepresented Job's words. He's not going to use Job's words against him to falsely accuse him. He is not only sincere and humble, he is also a man of integrity. As sinful human beings, our tendency is to misrepresent and misinterpret other people's words, especially when we're the ones being corrected. Did you hear what he say, said? Did he call me a fool? No. He said, you're acting like a fool. That's completely different, isn't it? So Elihu doesn't. He quotes Job almost word for word as Job claimed to be pure and clean. He committed no transgression and there was no iniquity in him. Although Job was right when he made his case of innocence against his friends, false accusations, yet he overestimated his own righteousness at points that may have blinded him of his present sin. Isn't this all too often the case? We overestimate our own righteousness or our own righteous cause that it may blind us from our present sin. We, all of us have blind spots, don't we? But sometimes we're so self-righteous that we can't see 
those blind spots. Although Elihu is not saying that Job is suffering because he sinned, but he did sin because he was suffering. And his present sin was that he was accusing God of wrong. Job said, I'm innocent, but behold, God has something against me. He treats me as an enemy. He has publicly shamed me. He puts my feet in stocks and watches all my paths as if I was a criminal in hiding. So Elihu corrects Job and says, in this you are not right. This compelled Elihu to speak. He reminds Job that God is greater than man. In in other words, we must first recognize ourselves as his creatures. We don't demand things from God. He knows all the ins and outs of all of our situations. We don't. He is greater than us. And we are not on the same level. So he says to Job, he doesn't contend against you. Why do you contend against him? Saying he will answer none of man's words. Because God is not silent. God speaks. In fact... As we know from John chapter 1, verse 1, God is described as the Word of God. God speaks. The question is, how does God speak? And Elihu lays out a few ways in which God speaks. He speaks in more than one way. He speaks through His creation, what we call natural or general revelation. And he speaks in extraordinary or miraculous ways, which we tend to call special revelation. In the Old Testament days, God spoke in ways which he no longer speaks in today. God spoke directly to his people to reveal himself and his will. He even spoke to his enemies this way. Think of when King Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall. It was God warning him of his Coming judgment. So he says, first, God speaks to men in dreams, visions, when they were in a deep sleep, cozy in their beds. Then the Lord opens their ears and terrifies him with warnings. Sounds like the nightmare of all nightmares. It is said that dreams and nightmares are the result of either thoughts that you may have had throughout the day in your subconscious. Maybe you are fearful of an event watched a horror movie or something of that sort. Or maybe it is the result of a guilty conscience. And here, Elihu says, the Lord uses these means for a purpose. And the purpose is to save. It is to frighten men into repentance. He uses these means to convict the conscience of sin so that man would turn from his evil deeds and keep him from pride. The purpose for the dreams and visions here is redemptive and gracious. To keep a man's soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. It is to keep man from judgment. This is God's ultimate purpose when he speaks to man. It is to save. It is to save man from the coming judgment. So Elihu doesn't say that Job was suffering because he sinned, but instead that the purpose of his suffering 
was to keep him from sin. To keep him from pride. Paul would later say something similar to what Elihu says here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 7. He says this. So to keep me from becoming conceited. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. Job was in a favored position, much like Paul. God said that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God revealed himself to Job. One evidence of this is that he offered sacrifices for the atonement of sin. Who told him to do that? So the reason why he was suffering was not because of sin, but maybe because God was chastening him. He was keeping him from becoming conceited. And God may humble those who need it less. Those who already walk blamelessly and humble before him. Even Paul said he needed to be humbled. And we know the stature of Paul. Who can live up to his stature today? So it's not only those who need to be disciplined the most who will receive chastening. Even those who don't need it will sometimes be chastened to keep them from pride. Secondly, God also speaks through pain and suffering. He says, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. So that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen. And his bones that were not seen stick out. He comes so close to death. That, this sounds like Job's situation, doesn't it? But it doesn't mean that Job was in pain because he was being punished for sin. It, it could actually mean that God was graciously speaking to him through his pain. We hardly ever think of how misery in this world at, as a result of the fall, could be God's way of calling us to attention. We hardly ever think of how God uses misery to lead us to repent. It should lead us to think of God's judgment and how this could be a moment where God is calling us to wake up. Just think of the various things that have occurred in the last few years. Think of the wars and the rumors of wars. Think of all the disease. Think of what some people call climate change. Wildfires and earthquakes. Instead of making everything political. Have Christians stopped to think about how this could be God calling for our attention. Telling us, wake up, I'm coming soon. Be prepared. Well, the same goes with our personal suffering and pain. Uh, as C.S. Lewis has said, that our pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Or, it could be God graciously using our pain to save us from ourselves. I remember getting sick 
recently and a wise man told me, maybe this is God telling you, you need to rest. You need to take it easy. The church will not fall apart if you're sick. Okay. For the believer, our pain is always redemptive. Our pain is to serve God's gracious purposes for us. This is what Elihu is saying. Job's suffering and pain had grace written all over it. Because God's purpose for Job was ultimately to rescue him. That is his purpose for his people today. It is not a punishment for sin. Not always. And we know he does so. He saves us through a mediator. We see this in verses 23 through 30. So thirdly, he says that God speaks through a mediator who will stand between Job and God. Here he says this mediator is an angel. If there be for him an angel. Angels have been described throughout scripture as God's intermediaries or mediators who will speak to man for God or speak to God for man. We see this in Galatians chapter 3 verses 19 through 20, Deuteronomy 30, 33, Hebrews 1:14. And in the Old Testament on special occasions God himself appears as an angel called the angel of the Lord. He is among his angels and clothes himself as one of them. Like in Zechariah chapter 3 verses 1 through 5 when the angel of the Lord who is then addressed as the Lord rebuked Satan who was accusing Joshua the high priest of sin. Because this angel that Elihu describes is one of the thousands. He's not keeping track of how many angels there are. He's not saying this is angel number one, this is angel number two. No, he's not doing that. This is another way of saying that this angel is unique. He is a mediator. He is unique. He is one of the many. He is one of a kind. Like when Paul says now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And what purpose does this mediator serve? Well, to sum it up, it is the purpose of God's grace. First, he, he declares what is right for man. He declares the law of God, the word of God. Secondly, he is merciful to man. This demonstrates that this mediator is not a mere angel but one who has the authority to show mercy to fallen man. Much like Jesus, where it says being a, a man, the son of man that is, he had the authority to forgive sins on earth. Thirdly, this angel delivers man. He redeems man. The mediator says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. A ransom is a payment for a debt owed. It is a substitute. This ransom saves man from the pit. It saves him from death. The ransom pays the debt that man owes so that he would not have to suffer for it. Because man could never pay off this debt. His life would never suffice as a ransom for what he owes to God. Psalm 49.8 What Elihu is trying to communicate to Job is that man cannot save himself. Job could not save himself God must save him through 
this mediator whom Job has longed for since chapter 9, chapter 16, and 19. Who else does this mediator remind you of? Who else than our Lord Jesus Christ? He declared God's word. He was merciful to man. He intercedes for man right now at the right hand of God. He delivered and redeemed man. How? By paying a costly ransom with his own blood for his people to save them from the pit. But what else does this mediator do? What are the benefits of having this sort of mediator? Fourthly, he not only redeems and delivers man from the pit of death, but he also restores man. This mediator with a word says, let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. I can't help but think of when Jesus, with a word, called Lazarus out of his tomb after he had been dead for four days. God spoke a word and restored man to life. God speaks through a mediator to save and restore man from death. See, the reason God speaks is for our good. The reason we gather to hear God's word preached is not just an intellectual exercise. It is for our good. It is God's word coming to us to save and restore us. It is God, God's word coming to us to restore us to life. It's for our good. To give us new life. To raise dead sinners. And the question is always, are you listening? Are you listening? So what should be our response to such amazing grace? Here, Elihu says that this man will respond with prayer and a song of deliverance. It says he will pray to God and God accepts him. Because he has been ransomed and restored to life with God. He is now able to see his face with a shout of joy and God restores to man his righteousness or another translation is his justification. He now stands justified because he was ransomed and saved by this mediator. Isn't that a description of the promise to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul says, that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another until we finally arrive at the shores of the last sea, another Chronicles of Narnia reference. We must cross that last sea where we will behold the face of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. There, in a twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. We will be completely restored in righteousness. We will be like Christ because we will see him as he is. And God will do this. Man is unable to do this on his own. This should be a cause of celebration. It should be a cause for singing. Why do we sing in worship? To celebrate the truth. 
It is to sing before men and say, I sinned and perverted what was right. After hearing the word of God, after hearing God speak, this is the first truth that every believer must confess. I have sinned against a holy God and it was not repaid to me. I did not suffer the consequences that I deserve. That's what you should come away with from the word of God. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. What a beautiful song to sing in response to God's word to us. And it is because God does all these things, not man. God. Twice, three times with a man. Another way of saying countless times God has done this. And the purpose is always to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted, I would say lit. I don't know why it says lighted. So that he would be lit with the light of life. That is the purpose behind all of God's works and word in this world. He does all these things for his own glory and the good of his people. As Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, Elihu was not accusing Job of hiding his sin. He wasn't saying that he is suffering because of his sin. He tells Job that God is going to fulfill his gracious purposes in his people and he may even use their suffering and pain to do so. And he is going to deliver them from the pit and give them new life. That is the promise for Job and that is the promise for you and I, beloved. Let us lay hold of this truth. Let us lay hold of these promises from God's word. And lastly, another way that God speaks to Job is through man. For the second time, Elihu calls on Job to listen to him. He is to pay careful attention to his words. He sounds like the author of Hebrews in chapter 2 verse 1. Speaking of the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ who speaks through his word. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Lest we drift, drift away from it. And he gives him a chance to respond if he is wrong about this. Remember his motives. Unlike his friends, he is on Job's side. He is there to help Job. He desires to justify or vindicate Job. Job was right in defending himself against his friends, but he was wrong in accusing God of wrong. All that God does in the life of a believer is for his good and for his salvation. Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things... Not only the good things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Job was called according to God's purpose. So Job was expected to listen to God's word in response to his own misunderstanding and misrepresentation of God. And if Job has no response to Elihu. Elihu says, listen to me. 
Be silent. And I will teach you wisdom. That is the wisdom of God. So we conclude that God spoke through various means to keep Job from pride. And to save him from the pit. So a question for us to consider today. Is God silent today? Or does he still speak? I would have to conclude. God still speaks. Now I don't mean it the way many other maybe well-meaning Christians mean it. I don't mean it in the sense of special, miraculous, charismatic gifts. Or the way some liberals have said, well, God still speaks, meaning he has changed his mind about the seriousness of sin. And what the Bible says about sin. And about the way of salvation. Now, he no longer speaks in the ways we often hear from others. He doesn't reveal new special revelation anymore. He doesn't speak in dreams and visions or strong leadings. Right? In the OPC, there was a controversy right here in our presbytery. And it involved the Panayal movement. Uh, This is a movement that relied on strong leadings to go out into the mission field. So uh, they would turn down some place in the world and say, no, we can't go there because I don't feel God leading us there. But I think he's leading us here. Well, how did you come to that conclusion? See, God is not always going to make us comfortable. He may lead us to something that may make us feel awkward. You hear a lot of people say, well, I made this decision because God gave me peace about it. Really? What if he didn't? God may not give you peace about certain decisions you have to make. And he's not required to. When Jesus said, peace I leave you, my peace I give you, he wasn't saying you're never going to have turmoil in decision making. He's not here to give us peace about our decisions. Today, special revelation is not in those strong leadings or in the charismatic gifts or anything like that. It is especially through the word of God. And those leadings, if you have a leading, it must be checked by the word. The author of Hebrews opens up his letter with long ago at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Those who were given dreams and visions. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. There is a fulfillment here that we must consider. And that fulfillment is found in the Son and the words of the Son, which, by the way, is all of Holy Scripture. Remember how Paul told the Colossians not to let anyone disqualify them, insisting on asceticism, mysticism, and the worship of angels, mystical experiences that no one else has, going on in detail about visions and not holding fast to the head, which is Christ. Now, instead of visions and other experiences, it is now the word of God. 
If you feel that God revealed something to you specifically, my advice would be get out of yourself and go back to the word of God. Check what you're feeling against that because as the author of Hebrews explains, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is how the Lord leads us today. The question is, are you listening? Are you listening? Also, the Lord still uses our suffering and pain for our good. As Christians, our pain is always redemptive. It is always seasoned with God's grace. And this is not just about being optimistic, but it is about seeing the whole picture of God's redemptive plan through our pain, suffering, and our loss. There is much to gain. Even the loss of our lives. For the Christian, it is gain. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For the world, when they die, they lose everything. But for us, we gain everything. We ought to say with Paul, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. May that be our prayer today and from this day forward. Amen.